This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has books by loads of great left-wing authors, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One book that you might like is Crashing the Party, From the Bernie Sanders Campaign to a Progressive Movement by Heather Gottney, with an introduction from Adolph Reed Jr., Bernie Sanders shocked the political establishment by winning 13 million votes and a majority of young voters in the 2016 Democratic primary. Since that upset, repeated polls have judged this Democratic Socialist to be the most popular politician in the United States. What lessons can be drawn from his surprising and surging campaign? Longtime author and activist Heather Gottney was a policy fellow in Sanders' Washington, D.C. office and a volunteer researcher and organizer on his presidential campaign. In reviewing what enabled Sanders to reach out to an unprecedented number with a socialist message and what stalled his progress, she draws lessons on the prospects and perils of building a progressive movement in the United States. Gottney's poignant account of the role that race and class played in the election cycle, her anatomy of the conflicting dynamics of movement and electoral ambitions— and her clear-eyed analysis of the Democratic position following Trump's victory will serve as a useful starting point for many readers newly aware of the limitations of the Democratic Party in the immensity of the challenges ahead. Crashing the Party, From the Bernie Sanders Campaign to a Progressive Movement, by Heather Gottney, out now from Verso Books. This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by Jacobin Magazine, which this podcast is produced in collaboration with. I've been a Jacobin reader and supporter for years, and beyond helping this podcast get off the ground, they've also played a huge role in bringing socialist ideas back into discussion in the United States and beyond. You can subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Subscribers get an absolutely gorgeous print publication in their mailboxes every couple months and access to Jacobin's entire archive of over 4,000 articles. If you're not a subscriber, go to jacobinmag.com and become one today. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You are likely rather familiar with one of today's guests. It's Bernie Sanders. I just moderated a discussion in Philly with the senator, along with District Attorney Larry Krasner, scholar and frequent dig guest Kianga Yamada-Taylor, and veteran defense lawyer and advocate Pramal Daria. Bernie came to Philly because what's happening here is extraordinarily important. This is a city where, for years, cops have committed abuses— and engaged in corruption with near impunity, and where prosecutors long looked the other way while feeding poor young black people into the present-day peculiar institution of mass incarceration. Last year, Philadelphia voters elected Larry Krasner, a longtime civil rights champion who pledged to fight to end mass incarceration. And that happened for the same reason that Bernie came out of nowhere and came so close to winning the Democratic nomination for president in 2016. Both Bernie Sanders and Larry Krasner tapped into and were lifted up by massive grassroots movements, which represent and speak to an emerging majority that wants transformative change. 
And so this is why Bernie Sanders came to Philly, to learn about what has gone so horribly wrong with the criminal justice system and how we can all organize to do the hard work to make it right. Very briefly, we're still in our spring fundraising drive. If you're a fan of what we do here at The Dig, please take a moment to help ensure the long-term financial viability of the show at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We can't make this happen without you, and we also have socialist treats to send you in the mail. Without further delay, here's the show. Here we go. this special discussion and special episode of the Dig podcast about the fight against mass incarceration in Philadelphia and beyond. My name is Daniel Denver. I'm the host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine, a writer in residence at the Fair Punishment Project's news site Injustice Today, and a reporter focusing on criminal justice and immigration. And I spent quite a few years here in Philadelphia at the now sadly defunct city paper covering criminal justice when Larry Krasner definitely wasn't the DA yet. <laughs> um, we're live here at Philly Cam, the city of Philadelphia's people-powered public access television station and community radio station WPPM 106.5 FM. <clears throat> uh, we have a remarkable panel today, and I'm going to introduce them now. Bernie Sanders is an independent U.S. senator from the green state of Vermont who, as you know, mounted a historic campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016, calling for an end to oligarchic rule in this country. Larry Krasner is today, indeed, the district attorney of Philadelphia. Prior to that, he spent years as a civil rights and defense attorney and represented protesters and organizers of all sorts, from ACT UP and anti-Republican National Convention demonstrators to Occupy Philly and Black Lives Matter. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and also How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, both from Haymarket Books. Premal Daria is the director of litigation at Civil Rights Corps and previously spent 15 years representing people charged with crimes in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and at the Military Commission in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Senator Sanders, I'd like to start with you. What is your assessment of the current state of an American criminal justice system that incarcerates so many poor people, particularly poor people of color, for such extremely long sentences, and yet seem to have a lot of trouble finding anyone on Wall Street to punish in the wake of the financial crisis? Ain't that something, huh? Uh, you're suggesting that the people who destroyed our economy, who forced millions of people to lose their jobs, their homes, their life savings because of illegal activity, and nothing happened to them. Not one of them went to jail. And yet we have kids in this city and all over this country who get picked up with marijuana. They get a um, criminal record, some of them will end up in jail. So I think bottom line here is, you know, we claim to have in the Pledge of Allegiance uh, 
a system calling for justice for all. But one would be very naive to believe that was the case. We have a system of justice for the wealthy. And if you have the money and the good lawyers, my God, there's almost anything you can commit and get away with. And then we have another system for the poor and working people of this country. So the bottom line here is that in the midst of massive income and wealth inequality, a declining middle class, 40 million people living in poverty, massive amounts of racism and sexism in this country, we have, and this is an important point for us to digest, we have over 2 million people in jail today, as you indicated, largely poor, disproportionately African-American, Latino, Native American. We have more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China, a communist authoritarian country. And then on top of all that, we have the privilege of spending $80 billion a year locking up fellow Americans. So I think there could be no debate, whether you're a conservative or progressive or somewhere in between, that we have a broken criminal justice system that is begging, begging for real reform. And the good news, as Larry will talk about, we are seeing here in Philadelphia and all around the country the beginning of an effort to bring about significant reform of that system. Senator, one big problem, of course, with mass incarceration and policing in this country is the drug war. And in recent years, we've had record numbers of people locked up in the name of keeping safe, them safe. Yet, at the same time, the overdose rate has skyrocketed. The, the white face of the opioid crisis has certainly provoked more public sympathy than the crack era ever did because crack was perceived to be a black issue. But still, today, prosecutors are often seeking extremely punitive sentences against drug dealers um, as though it will do something to save lives. Just right here outside of Philadelphia and Montgomery County, people are being charged, everyday ordinary drug dealers, drug users, with, with homicide for having provided drugs to friends of theirs who overdosed. Meanwhile, pharmaceutical companies uh, are charging sky-high rates for naloxone, which saves people's lives. How do you see the opioid crisis and the drug wars, and what can Congress do to end both? Don't get me into the drug companies and the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry, or we won't discuss anything else. Because <laughs> these are uh, some of the biggest crooks in America who made major five companies, made $50 billion in profit last year, and people can't afford the medicine that they need. All right, look, I think it is fair to acknowledge that when we talk about a broken criminal justice system, we also have got to acknowledge that we have had a 40-year failed war on drugs, which has done massive damage to this country. I mean, and we could talk, and we will talk about the insanities of this so-called war on drugs, but let me just start off by saying that under the Federal Controlled Substance Act, people think I'm not telling the truth, but I am, heroin is regarded as a Schedule I drug right alongside of marijuana. Heroin and marijuana. Does anybody in their right mind, you know, you may, people talk about the pluses and minuses of marijuana. Nobody thinks the marijuana equates to a deadly drug uh, like heroin. Um, we have uh, seen uh, in the last uh, number of years millions of people arrested for possession of marijuana, getting criminal records. Now, you got a criminal record that might not put you in jail. Maybe sometimes it does. But what does it mean when you go out and get a job, when you try to get some other public benefit? People say, oh, you have a criminal check. Well, you come back next year. I don't need you right now. So we have, I think, need to have an understanding that prohibition against alcohol 
did not work in the 1920s, and prohibition against marijuana and other drugs is not working today. So it has to be rethought in a very, very fundamental way. And the good news, of course, is it is being rethought. I think we have eight states in this country now, plus a DC, uh, that are either decriminalizing possession of marijuana or moving to the legalization of marijuana. Uh, I am uh, in support and a co-sponsor of federal legislation that would do that in every state uh, in this country. So I think if we're serious uh, about understanding a failed and collapsing criminal justice system, uh, ending the war on drugs is an important part of that. I want to set the table for the rest of the discussion, um, D.A. Krasner, by getting into some detail about precisely what has gone so wrong with the criminal justice system, particularly here in Philadelphia. You obviously experienced the system close up for years as a defense and civil rights attorney, and the city has a long history of impunity for police abuse and district attorneys who were more than happy to look the other way while packing off residents of the city to state prison. Tell me about this city's criminal justice system as it has existed and why you ran for DA to change it. So I think much like other cities, what you have is a highly politicized DA's office where the district attorney basically gets elected in order to run for something else. And if you look at the history of, of Philly, that's what you see. You see Arlen Specter, you see Ed Rendell, you see other people who successfully or not ran for a higher office from that office. That, the timing of that phenomenon, the time in U.S. history, when we started to see that, coincides in many ways with the timing of the increase in mass incarceration and mass supervision. So what, it, what really went on in those offices was that you had politicians who thought that there was political benefit in taking tax money and putting people who were made into these objects of fear, putting them into jail. It was almost like vote laundering. You take tax money, you turn it into your votes, and in the process, you create all of these jails. And this, of course, diverts money away from things that actually stop crime, like good public education, like treating drug addiction for what it is, a medical condition, by putting money into treatment, like economic development, like economic opportunity, like jobs programs. So I think that is sort of the longer history, and it's a history that applies in Philadelphia, you end up with what we have. You have mass incarceration, you have mass supervision, which is frankly an incredibly important topic. Um, you have a system that does not care for victims and witnesses the way it should, because they are frankly being used for political purposes rather than being healed in the ways that they need. And you have a system that in so many other ways has built up notions like the death penalty, which is never imposed anyway, but costs a fortune for political reasons. So it's a mess. And you know, after 30 years of being in court four and five days a week and being disgusted with it and watching um, people running who I thought were a little bit more political than they were oriented towards actual reform, I wisely or unwisely decided to run and ended up here. And here you are. Uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, you've been a serious critic, trenchant critic of mass incarceration, not only as a massive human rights violation, but also as a system of racist social control in a, in a period, a long-standing economic crisis in this country. The government provides so little in the way of the good stuff that we like it to provide in terms of education, healthcare, mm -hmm. retirement, but there never seems to be a lack of cash when it comes to policing prisons and war. Um, can you talk a little bit about what progressive elected officials need to understand about the role played by mass incarceration and policing in our highly unequal and profoundly segregated society? Well, there's a lot to say about it. I think the, the main thing 
um, just as a starting point, is that um, we shouldn't talk about these issues in uh, isolation. So meaning that we shouldn't talk about uh, the crisis of mass incarceration and the crises in the criminal justice system without talking about it in perspective of what else the, is happening in our society, uh, particularly the gutting of uh, the civic infrastructure. So in a city like Philadelphia, where uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2012, 26 public schools are closed. In Chicago, which is a perennial target for the right, for the administration, uh, 52 schools, public schools, were closed in um, 2012. Uh, another three uh, high schools in a neighborhood that is seen as a, a, a kind of um, focal point of violence in Chicago has announced uh, closure of uh, three high schools in Inglewood. At the same time, in Chicago, uh, the city has found $95 million to build a new um, police academy. And so I think that we have to not just connect these issues in a typical way, which is to say that poverty gives rise uh, to crime, because as you pointed out, uh, there are many people uh, who commit crimes. But what poverty does is uh, uh, create uh, the basis upon which certain groups of people become more vulnerable. So we talk about racial profiling. There's also such a thing as poverty profiling. And so African-Americans and Latinos who are overrepresented in the ranks uh, of the poor and, and low income and working class become um, much more susceptible to the surveillance of the police, um, to the surveillance of the criminal justice system uh, in general as a result. And so in that sense, we have to look at these things uh, together, which is dealing with the issues of mass incarceration and crime, but also we have to not reinvest, we have to invest in uh, uh, poor and working class communities um, that have been gutted, not recently, but over the last 40 years um, in terms of public education, public, uh, uh, public hospitals, public libraries, public clinics, the entire public sector um, has been undermined. And so those things, we have to see those things together um, as, as a way to really fight this issue. Thank you. Um, Rebel Daria, in, in October, my colleague Josie Duffy Rice wrote an op-ed in the New York Times taking Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and other self-styled reformer DAs to task. She wrote that, like many other prosecutors across the country who get credit for changing the game, that, that Vance is like many other prosecutors across the country who get credit for changing the game while continuing draconian practices. Um, and that Mr. Vance simply isn't the reformer he paints himself as. Where have you seen self-styled progressive prosecutors betray their rhetoric in practice? And uh, since you're sitting right next to D.A. Krasner, what have you seen so far in Philadelphia? I can leave if you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> close your ears. Um, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I mean, th to start, I think it's really great, of course, that there's increased awareness um, around the country about the structural, you know, the deep structural problems in our criminal system. Um, and so that can have really good implications. It can also have really negative ones in that there's an opening in the political space to self-style as reform um, in terms of, you know, prosecutorial efforts and otherwise. Um, and I think that that op-ed um, did a great job of highlighting um, what Mr. Vance and others in the op-ed, for example, Jackie Lacey in Los Angeles has mentioned and Leon Canazero in New Orleans has mentioned um, 
that, that a lot of what's happened is that they are publicly pronouncing sort of we're going to change the system, we know it's unfair, and that is you know, tapping into a broader conversation about the unfairness of the system, but that in practice what we're seeing is that those offices led by those prosecutors are not actually on the ground doing anything different. For example, um, Mr. Vance's office continues to zealously prosecute misdemeanor offenses. And in fact, I think is leading the way in New York among the boroughs of people who are charged with and detained for misdemeanor offenses. Um, people continue to be detained at staggering rates in New York. Um, people continue to be held on cash bail in New York. Um, you know, the racial disparities in the system in New York are, are being perpetuated by the practice and not, there's no self-awareness about how to change that um, in, in their office. And so those are the kinds of things, I think, that um, undermine claims to reform um, and that we're seeing around the country. As for what's happening here, I think a really important distinction and a really important note to make about reform prosecutors that are self-styled is, is that what is often missing is a tie to the community that is being served or impacted by the work that they're doing. Um, and so, you know, rather than being politically motivated, as Mr. Krasner was saying earlier, um, it's really important for elected officials, including prosecutors, um, to be serving the communities that they represent um, and to be working in partnership with those communities. And so I, what we saw here, um, leading up to the election of Mr. Krasner, was... Um, you are going to call me Larry, right? <laughs> <laughs> it felt funny calling you D.A. Krasner. It's my dad. Anyway. It's a D.A., I'm the same Mr. You are the D.A. Uh, um, so what we saw here was real work you know, in partnership with the community, um, real coalition building in the community. Um, you know, the Coalition for a Just DA developed and was instrumental to Mr. Krasner's election, to Larry's election. Um, and, and that partnership um, you know, was something that was really important to the election itself and has been important throughout and is what's going to be important as Mr. Krasner continues to expand upon and implement the reforms that um, he's publicly promised. Um, <laughs> that you were gonna hold them accountable. <laughs> right. So it's, it's the accountability um, to the community and the service of community and the working in partnership with community that I see different here than elsewhere and um, that I think will really make a difference. Um, and that will lead to the kind of transformative change that we need instead of the Band-Aid solutions that a lot of other prosecutors are applying. Um, DA Larry Krasner. Um, you know Larry's solution. Larry. Um, following up on, on that, what do you see to be the most important reforms that you've made so far since taking office? It's quite early yet. Uh, but things that come to mind are overhauling charging and sentencing, diverting low-level offenders like small-time drug dealers and sex workers out of the system entirely, um, and ensuring that the Conviction Integrity Unit is actually interested in freeing those serving time for crimes they did not commit, something that your predecessors were utterly uninterested in doing. That's a mouthful, but so is the criminal justice system. What... So I think, you know, it is really early. We're only, what are we, four months in, something like that? A um, little over that. But I think probably we've had the most success thus far in working on issues of mass incarceration and mass supervision because they are so immediate that you can have an impact right away. For example, we identified 26 different crimes that are not so serious 
where we wanted to have a presumption that people would not be required to pay cash bail in a state where cash bail is routine. And guess what? Our county prison population started to come down twice as fast as it was coming down previously. We uh, made a decision that since the Pennsylvania sentencing guidelines, which judges are not required to follow, although they must consider, are not actually scientific, uh, they are not based upon evidence showing that they prevent recidivism. They're actually just based on an averaging of sentences across the state and some sort of misguided effort to bring uniformity to uh, excessive sentences. Since that's all they are, and since not only is the country the most incarcerated in the world, but Pennsylvania has a rate of incarceration that's even higher than the rest of the country, that we would take for most offenses that are not too serious, we would have our assistant DAs offer something below the bottom end of the sentencing guideline so that the sentences would be more in line with an effort to come back in line with, with the way sentencing used to be and the levels of incarceration previously. You know, there are many other uh, things that we're after. We, we're trying to bring about reform in how we deal with people who have immigration issues, and so we started a unit like that. Uh, we're moving heavily and directly in the direction of dealing with excessive supervision because it turns out, once again, Pennsylvania doesn't just have the most juvenile lifers and the second most lifers who are serving sentences that will require them to die in jail. But it also, it turns out, is the worst state in the United States when it comes to excessive parole. And it's the third worst state in the United States when it comes to a combination of excessive probation and parole. So this is, what, what we think is normal in Pennsylvania is not normal. Nationally, it's a mess. Pennsylvania is even worse. And Philadelphia, until recently, despite the fact that it's a heavily democratic, very diverse city with a history of freedom was the most incarcerated of the 10 largest cities in the United States, and not coincidentally the most broke. This stuff goes together, and not safe. That's kind of how it works. So we're trying to do whatever we can to get at those issues, and thanks to a few decades of going the wrong direction, that means we have to, uh, we have to turn the vehicle a different direction. So it'll be a challenge going forward, but I think, that, I think that we have a lot of support coming both from inside the office and also from outside. Uh- Senator, I want to talk about the federal level. Not long ago, there was this sense that there was all of this bipartisan momentum for criminal justice reform legislation in Congress. And now, at the best, it seems like that momentum has slowed to a crawl. And at the same time, President Trump is calling for the execution of drug dealers. And Jeff Jeff Sessions is rolling back Obama-era reforms on mandatory minimums, private prisons, and civil asset forfeiture. Um... What's your take on the current status of criminal justice policymaking in Washington? Well, I think if you look uh, at what has to be done on criminal justice, and that includes uh, some of the things Larry and others have been talking about, uh, what we can say is with great consistency, the Trump administration and the attorney general are moving us in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, They are building on failed policies Uh, and setting aside policies uh, that make sense. Uh, Kang raised the important point that I think you can't look at criminal justice in a vacuum. You have to look at it in a a broad sense about terms of what else is happening uh, in this country. Uh, We got 40 million people in this nation living in poverty. We have public school systems which are collapsing. We have millions of working class and lower income families that can't afford childcare. We know that some 75% of young people in juvenile detention systems have trouble reading. 
And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if a kid grows up in a community where he is leaving school, either dropping out or graduating, unable to have the skills that you need to get a job, that kid will do something else. So to go back to the point I think that everybody here has made, we have got to invest in our young people, in our communities. If we invested a fraction of the money in making sure that our young people had the education and the jobs that they needed, rather than investing in jails and incarceration, we could go a very, very long way in lowering the number of people who are in jail today. And let's remember something. I think sometimes this point is not made often. We talk about two million people being in jail, but those two million people have children, they have wives, they have husbands, they have mothers, they have fathers. All right? When they are in jail, they are not working. Their careers are destroyed. Their ability to get jobs are destroyed. So we have, I think, um, a, a great challenge, and I congratulate again Larry uh, for what he and some other brave people are doing in beginning to change the system. In my view, from an overview, of course, what the Trump administration and many of my Republican colleagues choose not to know for the reason that it's a good, cheap political point to say, I'm going to get tough on crime, we're going to lock up everybody. I guess that gets your votes. But there are some, to talk about bipartisanship, there are some conservatives who understand that we can spend $80 billion or a part of that in a lot smarter way than just building jails and locking people up. So there's a lot to be done short term when you have maybe 20% of the prison population or the jail population. You know why they're in jail? For the crime of being poor. This is insane, but you got people who cannot afford bail and are in jail before their trials. You got other people in jail because they can't afford to pay off a traffic ticket. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. It, this is kind of a no-brainer. Uh, and then we move to mental health. We've got how many people in jail? You throw people in jail because we don't have mental health facilities. So there's a lot of very obvious things that some conservatives understand. And despite Trump and Sessions, I think there is a momentum all over this country uh, to begin to tackle uh, this broken criminal justice system. Others should feel free to jump in at any I, The one thing that I would say is, is that um, I agree. The, the level of um, imprisonment, I think, reflects the level of inequality in our society, which is why the United States stands out among um, its peer nations. And to some extent, um, I always describe this as the, the policing in particular becomes a kind of public policy of last resort uh, where, you know, we're not willing to, to pay for the schools, we're not willing to pay for um, uh, the, the, the type of, of programs that are intended to mitigate against poverty. And then the jobs that are created, I mean, Trump keeps going around talking about it's the lowest black unemployment rate um, uh, in, in, in history. And we're not talking about the kind of jobs and whether or not people are being paid a living wage and what kind of benefits um, are attached to these jobs, which is why I think it, it's so critical to talk about this um, with a much, uh, within a much broader uh, uh, perspective of all of the things that we're um, going to do so that the conversation doesn't become siloed into... Um, this or that particular aspect of uh, criminal justice reform without seeing that we have to create uh, a much bigger, there, there has to be a much bigger issue created around what types of alternatives are, uh, are, are going to exist in our country. In terms of 
shifting the policymaking momentum away from Sessions and Trump's right-wing reaction to the direction we need to be going, Senator, what um, needs to be done? Obviously, the, the vast majority of people in this country who are locked up are locked up in state and local facilities, but the federal government did play a big role in, in leading the, the rise of mass incarceration. And I should, I should underline, we haven't talked about it yet, that um, immigration enforcement, the detention and, and deportation of undocumented immigrants is a huge part of this country's law enforcement and incarceration issue. I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, we have not only a military industrial complex, you got a prison uh, industrial complex in which some people make a, a, a whole lot of uh, money. Uh, but to answer your question, I think um, when we talk about the need to transform this country, and what I talk, I refer to that as a political revolution, what it means is bringing people together around an agenda that works for all people, not just the 1% of wealthy campaign contributors. And as part of that agenda, it means health care for all. Think about what that would mean for families. Raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, creating decent jobs, making sure that we have a child care system that works for working families and making public colleges and universities tuition free. If you think all of those things would not significantly lower uh, crime in this country, you would be mistaken. That's where we should be uh, investing. Uh, but on top of uh, all of that, um, you know, I think we need to build a progressive political movement uh, which understands that criminal justice and immigration reform are integral parts of that agenda, of our agenda. So it's not just health care for all. Uh, it's not just raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. It is saying that we have a goal of significantly reforming a broken criminal justice system. And I think we'll talk about the ways today about how we can do that. And I think, let me give you some good news despite Trump, is that all over this country, we are seeing working people and young people starting to run for office on progressive platforms. We're seeing voter turnouts higher than they used to be. There are millions of people who are determined not just to take on Trump, but to transform this country, raise the voter turnout, and create the kind of nation that we know we can become. And criminal justice and justice in general is in the midst of that whole debate. Um, Premal Daria, um, I'm wondering how you see what can be done by someone like Larry Krasner as a progressive DA and what things need to be changed by city councils, state legislatures, uh, or Congress? Sure. I have a lot of ideas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't share <laughs> them all today. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think we, you know, we systematically, just as background, like we systematically exclude people from the primary labor market, right? And we've criminalized poverty. Mm -hmm. And so we do these things and we set up a structure that is, you know, it's, it's not going to work. There's no way in which it can work. And, um, you know, I think it's, I agree completely that our system is not working. I think um, it's, it's interesting to consider whether, whether it's genuinely broken or whether it was meant 
to function the way it functions. Um, and, and when we think about that and when we sort of like call that out and name it, I think we will be well positioned to actually make the kind of change that we want to see that's lasting and meaningful, right? that will help those people actually be able to live flourishing lives, um, the people that are excluded and criminalized um, for, their, you know, for their race, for their poverty. Um, and so one of the main, the main um, approaches that I think prosecutors can take in this, in this realm is ending cash bail, ending the money bail system, wealth-based detention. Um, is, you know, around our country right now, there are over 400,000 people um, locked in cages every single night um, who are pretrial, who have not been convicted of any crime, and most of those people are there because they cannot afford to purchase their way out. Um, they are, you know, out of their beds and f away from their families and children and homes and jobs because they cannot pay for their freedom. And um, so ending this grotesque system in which we sort of premise the ability to be free on the depth of your wallet um, is, has to be a priority. Um, it just has to be a priority. You know, my organization, Civil Rights Corps, has um, undertaken litigation as the primary means to challenge the money bail system around the country. Um, and for example, we sued, um, we brought a lawsuit in Harris County, Texas, which is where Houston is. Um, huge city, massive number of incarcerated people. Um, and one of our clients in that case, um, Louisa Magruder, was 22 when she was pulled over for driving 10 miles over the 40 mile per hour speed limit. Um, she ended up arrested um, and um, she was pregnant. She had a four-year-old and a 10-month-old at home, one of whom is disabled. And she spent five full days in a jail cell because she could not pay the $5,000 bail that was imposed in order to purchase her freedom and return to her family. Um, these are the kinds of stories and these are the kind of people that, that you know, we have an obligation to work for and um, to work with. And so ending the cash bail system is um, something prosecutors absolutely have in their power to do. Um, and I think in Philadelphia, there's been a start towards that and I think there's certainly more that could be done. Um, and, and I look forward to seeing that happen. Um, but, but prosecutors around the country can, can take that on because this is a reality in counties and states around our country. Um, so that's, the, that's the, the most urgent, I would say. Prosecutors can also take great steps to change um, how their line assistants and courtrooms around the country are seeking charges and how they are um, making plea offers. You know, um, one of the things that we see regularly around the country, and you know, I can draw on my 15 years of experience you know, with clients having these conversations and being in these situations, um, one of the things we see regularly is prosecutors uh, overcharging so that people are left in very difficult situations in which they are effectively coerced into pleading guilty. Um, and uh, you know, there's, there's no need for that to be the way it is. We could have honest charging. Um, that would dramatically change the, the landscape of criminal courtrooms around the country. Um, and I know that Mr. Krasner's office has, um, Larry's. Larry, Larry's office has made some steps in this regard as well. well yeah, what an idea, an actual right to a trial by jury. Um, Larry, uh, do you want to respond to, to any of that? I promise to do those things. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's absolutely right. We, we have to do a lot more. I mean, I think the good news is that, as one person said to me during my campaign, 
a very churchy person. Uh, we are, we just have to let you know, they said Mr. Krasner, but we just have to let you know that when we think of prosecutors, we think of like a devil because that's the person who took the neighbor boy and for something not that big, gave him a felony and had him in jail for two years. You know, that's, that's, those are the people who, when police would come on the block and beat us, they would always say it didn't happen. So it's a little strange for us to be in a room talking to you, all right? Dr. King used to say, if you want to fix a problem, get, it, get your mind right. And people have to start seeing working in a prosecutor's office or being a prosecutor as being an agent of change. We are trying very hard right now to recruit into our office some of the best legal minds and best young graduates from law schools we can find, and we're getting a lot of them. But they're also needed in many other cities where progressive prosecutors are coming in who are like-minded and who want to go in the right direction. It's really important that as these progressive prosecutors get in place and as they make these decisions with the tremendous amount of discretion that they have, that you have people in place whose moral compass is intact, who have the skills, who have the work ethic, who are not just there for the reason so many prosecutors have been, which is politics. And if you do that, you can make a lot of headway no matter what the laws are. Making being a prosecutor attractive to progressives is uh, even harder than making uh, being a congressman attractive. <laughs> I mean, that should be true for law enforcement as well. You know, being a police officer is a difficult job. We need great police officers who are part of the communities that they serve, who are respected, who are trusted. And I think that's kind of the transformation that we need. Um, I do. Go ahead, please. I do see, I mean, part of, I do think that the, the, the issue of, individual police officers is is an important one because it's often held up as you know we can't we can't judge the police but i i think it's more there's a bigger issue than than just um individual police officers it's how police are deployed it's how police are consciously used and and put into poor and working class neighborhoods, even though we know crimes happen all over the place. We can look at drug use, drug use by white people compared to drug use by black or brown people, but it's black or brown people who end up um, in, uh, in prisons and jails. And so I think that uh, one thing that Black Lives Matter has helped to do over the last several years is to show that what we're talking about is a system of policing uh, that is often the, the, the very front line of this engagement with the criminal justice system that is part of the problem. And I think that we have to also figure out how to make sure that the discussion about racist and abusive policing is also part of this discussion uh, about criminal justice reform. Because you have a president now who makes jokes about the police beating up people. And it feels like, and it might just be the proliferation of videos and, and that sort of thing, but that the police have taken the president up on this. I mean, every day we are inundated with video images of uh, uh, just abusive, dehumanizing um, attacks on, on black and brown people, uh, whether it's Starbucks here, where, I mean, you can talk about the, a manager calling the police on, on someone, but at some point, six police officers have to look at themselves when they are confronting two young black men who are doing nothing but sitting in a, in a restaurant and ask, what are we doing here? 
You know, at some point there has to be that sort of, of self-reflection. And if there is no self-reflection, then there needs to be some institutional reflection. And so I think that we have to include uh, a, a very big, serious and hard discussion about how police are functioning um, in, in, in black and brown communities in this country. Larry, can you talk a little bit about the DA's role historically in this city with dealing with police abuses and how you are looking to change things? So Philadelphia is a city, I don't know if it's like many others, but it's a city that is, uh, has been under the long shadow of Frank Rizzo, who was a police officer, who became the police commissioner, who became the mayor, and an incredibly brutal and racist one at that. Um, and so Philadelphia, perhaps more than most cities, became a place where the amount of power in the hands of white-dominated police organizations was very great. And it's frankly only starting to wane, I would say, in the last 10 years or so. Um, it, what it meant, and frankly meant during several district attorney's administrations, is that the police could do no wrong. Because let us remember, these were district attorneys who wanted to run for office, usually statewide. They wanted to be senators. They wanted to be governors. And Pennsylvania being the type of state it is, much like California, where you have a couple of Democratic liberal strongholds, and then you have a lot of people in the middle who are often referred to as, quote, Alabama, unquote, who have Trump lawn signs. Uh, Being that type of of place, it was very important to pander to the police union in, in Philadelphia so it would tell the police unions all across the state that the Philadelphian wasn't so bad because he was good with the police union. Um, you know, that witch's brew, frankly, led to a situation where routinely police officers were able to cover misconduct when there was misconduct, either corruption or brutality, with invented stories. It was often before everybody had a cell phone and before, you know, the truth had become so obvious and so viral and so available. Uh, And that went on for a very, very, very long time. When police officers did things that were pretty clearly crimes, uh, Lynn Abraham was going to look the other way. That's just the truth. So we are coming to a better place, I believe, in Philadelphia and elsewhere. There are generational shifts that are meaningful. And I think if you look at the people who voted for Bernie Sanders, um, I mean, he is the hero of the young folks, isn't he? Well, those young folks have certain opinions about a lot of things, including equality and race issues, and they have opinions about whether they'd like all of the money in the country in jails or they'd like it in public schools for their kids. So we are generationally, I think, moving to a better place where, where uh, prosecutors are expected to be even-handed and to hold police accountable when they do wrong in the same way they hold others accountable when they do wrong, none of which is to say that it's accurate to claim that all police are bad. I mean, uh, A, an awful lot of police are police of color. B, an awful lot of them have grown up in that environment. If you look at polls that are done of things like illegal stop and frisk, the African-American officers have a very different opinion on that topic than a lot of the white officers. Even in Philly, amazingly enough, the African-American Police Officers Association endorsed the most progressive candidate for DA, who happens to have been me, in this this race, uh, despite the fact that the police union is white-dominated and had endorsed Donald Trump in a city where Donald Trump only got one five, 15 percent of the vote. So you have no one. None of us are monolithic. None of us are like everybody else in our group. And the reality is that there's a lot of great police officers who want to go in the right direction. They need to knock some of the bad ones out of the way so they can do it. 
I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. Senator, your run for president showed that certain things that were long considered against the rules could be said and that they would be received with a lot of popular support. I think Larry showed the same thing when he ran for DA. There were certain things that people running uh, for DA weren't allowed to say, and he said them just as there were certain things that someone running for president wasn't allowed to say, and you said them and almost came out of nowhere and won. Um, In terms of criminal justice, in the political debate on the national level, what do you think can be said now that wasn't that was unsayable before? Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, the world is changing, you know, right in front of us. I mean, ten years ago, uh, you talked about legalizing marijuana. Oh my God, you had a few you know, folks out there in Colorado or someplace talking about it. You now have you now have studies, by the way, which show that over half of American adults have smoked marijuana. Okay. Sure you, have, <laughs> you have uh, eight states that have either decriminalized or legalized marijuana, and that number clearly is going to grow. Uh, you know that you're gaining, uh, making progress when somebody like Mitch McConnell talks about growing hemp. When John Boehner you know, gets on board, I forgot exactly, decriminalizing marijuana. Look, what politicians <laughs> are about is trying to assess where people are at. And more and more people, African-American community, Latino community, the white community, understands that this war on drugs has failed, has destroyed so many lives, is costing us so much money. I just heard something today. Somebody can confirm it or not. My understanding is it costs about $36,000 a year to send a kid uh, to Penn State. What does it cost for us to be locking up that kid? Fifty, sixty thousand? 60000 In Philly, yeah. All right. And I think people are catching on that it makes a lot more sense to be educating our young people than you know, putting them away and wrecking lives and spending a whole lot of money uh, in that process. So here is the good news, and, and you raised this point. And 
on issue after issue, whether it is criminal justice, whether it is health care, you know, majority of Americans now support Medicare for all, overwhelming support for raising the minimum wage, overwhelming strong support for making public colleges and universities tuition free. On all of these issues, you know, the media doesn't tell us this. The American people want government to work for ordinary folks, not just wealthy campaign contributors. So I think the word is out that you can run for office on a progressive agenda. You don't have to be defensive about it because more likely than not, most of the people in your community support that agenda. Let me say this. I, I think what we saw in Philly was what I guess we should have known, which is that the Democratic Party in particular has suppressed the vote. They may not have thought they were doing it, although some of them surely did. <laughs> depending on where you were. But, yes, you know, but I think what happened with Bernie, and I think to some small extent what happened here with this campaign is a whole lot of people who were never going to vote because they were so tired of the candidates running decided that this was the time when maybe they would go register to vote. You know, voting is habitual. If you run candidates who excite a group of people who feel alienated and they come out and vote the first time, they may just get amped up enough to do it again, especially if you can get more candidates who are in that category. And it makes all the difference. There used to be a much higher rate of voters turning out uh, 30 years ago than there are now. You know, if, if progressives can do that, if they can stop playing the middle, if Democrats can stop trying to act Republican light, which is what they have done for decades unsuccessfully, I'm glad you're smiling at me. If they, <laughs> if, if, if they can start doing that and we can just excite the people who want to participate but have no faith in those candidates, then, then there is nothing the conservatives are going to be able to do. This is, I mean, this is part of the, the issue. In the last election, there are 238 million eligible uh, voters in the United States. 137 million voted. 100 million people did not vote. And I think is... We, there's a bipartisan problem, which is both neither party is able, has been able to speak to the actual concerns of, of ordinary people. Um, and so I think in the, in the, this, this is part of the, this is part of the issue. The Democratic Party leadership still feels very constrained um, by uh, this you know, I think by the, the political status quo um, and reluctance, if you can call it a reluctance, um, uh, to really engage with this idea of that, that you're talking about, that people want health care, that people want free college. And instead, it, it almost feels like the party is willing to go after you, that they are willing to stay with the status quo and turn their attention towards you because for them, for the establishment, you represent a political path that they have spent 40 years trying to get away from. This idea of big government, that, that we should be spending money on social programs. That's the old Democratic Party, according to this logic, and this is a different thing. Wall Street, contractors, you know, the whole thing. And so this is, I'm not sure how that cul-de-sac is broken out of because those are the people who are in control of the party. Those are the people who dictate the direction of the party. And meanwhile, Bernie Sanders gets 13 million people to vote for someone who identifies as a socialist. 
And so you see that there is a deep desire uh, for a different way, for a different path, but the question is always whether or not that can fully emerge when you have the people who are leaving the White House broke and then running again, becoming millionaires based on giving sweetheart speeches to Wall Street. And those are the people who are still at the helm uh, of this party. And so that's, that's part of the, that's part, it's not a side issue, it's a part of the issue because it's what happens with those 100 million people who do want things to be different but have no political home in the bipartisan system that, uh, that exists here. Well, I would just agree with what Kanga said and add to that the role of money yes, over both absolutely. political parties. I mean, we have the obscenity. You know, I, I am an old-fashioned guy, and I come from a small state. We actually have town meetings where everybody has a vote. And now you're looking at a situation where billionaires and super PACs are pouring. You know, one family, the Koch brothers, spending $400 billion supporting right-wing you know, uh, extremists all over this country. So, you know, Kanger is right, but I am not unoptimistic, maybe because I've had the, the privilege, if you like, of going all over this country and seeing so many great people, you know, who really do want to change America in a very fundamental way. We have, I mean, don't get me going on this, but we have just increased military spending by $165 billion over a two-year period. Spent $80 billion locking people up. We've given a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the top 1%. And please don't tell me that we can't reform a criminal justice system and provide decent education and jobs to the young people in this country. Um, Larry and Pramal, I, I want to ask you about the, the, what the potential limits and roadblocks to reform uh, are going to potentially be. Obviously, the rise of mass incarceration was not all about crime and violence. It was about a lot of things, including, of course, racism and the reaction to the civil rights movement. But as James Foreman's excellent new book, Pulitzer Prize-winning new book, Locking Up Our Own, shows, there were real fears, not only amongst affluent people, but poor black people, um, that did play a role in the rise of mass incarceration, especially given that the state was not stepping in to provide services and jobs that people demanded. And today, we see law and order reactionaries pointing to upticks in the murder rate in certain cities to defend the status quo. So my question is, how, part one, how can we reduce the prevalence of violence, which is a real problem in a city like Philadelphia, and other sort of social harms without exclusively relying on policing and prisons? And then two, when violence does happen, how do we avoid a Willie Horton-style trap, which we had two major incidences of in the 1990s in Pennsylvania, um, where, where a particular tragic incident of violence becomes exploited by the media and by conservative forces to call for a new crackdown and to push back against any reform. I have some thoughts about that. So for, to answer your first question, um, in terms of you know what we can do, I think what we've all been talking about here today, and, and you know what I've tried to do with my career and, and with our litigation, is fundamentally to change the narrative. Right? We have to change the entire narrative. We have to radically shift how we think about our criminal system, how we treat human beings in our country. Um, you know what the purpose of all of this is, and and what the goals are. Um, so I think starting from that premise. 
doing what Senator Sanders has been talking about in terms of implementing actual policies that address exclusion from the primary labor market, that address the lack of education, healthcare, mental health care, treatment, all of these things, right, they're critical and they go directly to the heart of, of why people end up in the criminal system to begin with. Um, and if we actually sustain communities and allow them to flourish, I think we will see a totally different kind of system in a different kind of country. Um, and so that has to be a priority up front. Um, that's also related to you know, how we treat people in and after they are in the system, right? We are not taking care of the people that, that are going to come back and be our neighbors. Um, that's partly because we're not talking to the neighborhood, right? And like the people who are making decisions are not talking to communities that are directly impacted enough and that needs to be a better conversation that's happening. Um, but, but we're not taking care of people who are re-entering um, people, we're, you know, we're sort of, we're devastating lives. We're sort of putting people in these concrete boxes, saying good luck, devastating them, you know, ruining their chances for success, and then plopping them back into neighborhoods and expecting everyone to be good. Um, that's just, it's not going to work. And we need to, so we need to take care of things on the front end, on the back end, and in between. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of work to be done there. Um, and um, to answer um, your other question, politicization of violence yeah mass incarceration ends yeah I mean I think part of of what we need to talk about there is is changing the narrative around what's politically costly right like why why are we allowing the conversation to be focused on the Willie Horton-esque you know incident as opposed to the the scale of harm that is inflicted by the criminal system that exists now. And I think that one thing that Mr. Krasner has done in, his, in this first sort of phase of change that's happening in Philadelphia is to tackle that, for example, by, by starting to talk about the cost of incarceration at sentencing, right? Like, once we start changing the scale of the kinds of harm we're talking about um, and adding all of the harms to communities, to people, to real people, to you know the budget, to all the things that are that are also impacted by the choices that we make, I think that that is a real way to address that that potential cost, that potential danger. Larry, so the truth is that these policies are not simply ineffective; they cause crime. That is the truth. All the tough on crime, foot stompers and chest beaters for all these decades have been causing crime. And they've been doing it because they have taken the investment society should put into schools and into jobs and to all the other things we've talked about. And they've put it into corrections, mostly for their own political purposes. That's reality. They don't get to claim the moral high ground that somehow their tough on crime policies worked because they didn't. They did not work. We see that right now. That's part one. Part two is when we talk about the narrative. There's this thing called science. That's and a radical idea <laughs> into itself, Larry. There, there are these things called facts, and there's this thing called science. And, you know, there is a very ugly and long history of yellow journalism, no offense to you, which basically goes like this. Just to say present company excluded. Of course. <laughs> uh, which basically goes like this. Murder goes up X. Coverage of murder goes up 7X. Why? Because fear sells papers, makes money for papers. And that, ha that is in the bones of journalism anymore. We could talk about the reality that crime is actually going down in a particular city, but that's not what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about a sensational crime, a bloody crime, probably with a victim whose face is white and probably with a defendant whose face is black. 
because that is an old trope that just keeps coming out and seems to serve political purposes fairly well. The media needs to own this. But we also, as, as activists or as prosecutors, as professors, as politicians, we have to own the reality that if you don't gather the information to be able to say, this actually works, it's working all over, you're identifying a single incident and acting as if it's the truth, that's Ronald Reagan politics, that is, pardon the expression, bullshit. You can say this, we're just on the end. Can I? Okay. (laughs) Then I'll say more. But, uh, I mean, we we have to be able to attack that. Imagine a world where, imagine a world where the press coverage is um, cancer patient dies. Oh my God, cancer patient died. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say, well, uh, uh, is the doctor, you know, generally good and is, is our lives getting longer? We're not actually going to end mortality today, but if lives are getting longer and more people are surviving, why are you focused on the single incident? But we don't say that. Medicine figured out there's a thing called science. Criminal justice hasn't gotten there yet, and we all need to take them there. Um, a... Follow-up to that, though, is I, th- I think that rethinking the draconian punishments currently meted out to violent offenders remains a third rail in reform, and I'm guessing will will be a real limit to what even the most potentially radical DA in the country can accomplish. Maybe. Maybe you disagree. What? Do, how do you think that we can start rethinking how to violent offenses? All right, well, point one, what does violent mean? I mean... We all understand there are heinous crimes that require appropriately lengthy sentences and sometimes incapacitation. We get that. But violent is an expression that has been used in the law to refer to a couple of kids punching each other in a schoolyard with no injury, to two friends getting into a fight in a bar where one person ends up with two stitches and they all hug and make up afterwards. It has been used to refer to the possession of a firearm that is never fired or going through the window of a house when no one is home with no weapon. You know, we, ha- we can't think of violence as being a monolithic point. These cases need to be look at, looked at individually and there's a very vast uh, distinction between many of the cases we call violent and, and the type of punishments they should receive, which often should be probation or even diversion, as opposed to cases that involve real violence, the kind of violence that tears apart society. Well, I think it, 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 your question, if I could, also speaks to whether we're in the business of punishment or whether we are in the business of preventing crime and rehabilitation. I remember years ago, my wife and I were in, I think it was Denmark, no, it was Sweden, and we went to their maximum, maximum security prison. This is the truth. We walked in and we said to the warden, I would like to talk to some of the prisoners. He said, well, let me talk to the prisoners' union first. <laughs> to see if it's a good idea. Prisoners' Union thought it was a good idea. So we walked in, and we walk into a kitchen, and they got these huge knives mm-hmm. on the wall. This is maximum security. Mm-hmm. In other words, their goal is to figure out how, in the most cost-effective way, you can get people back into life to work and pay taxes rather than just punish them forever. Mm-hmm. And that's a philosophical issue, as you indicated, that we have to deal with. I- Can I just say, as part of that, I think even with the quote-unquote difficult cases that we have to stop throwing people away and we have to stop uh, um, investing money in the destruction of individuals and start investing in helping to rehabilitate, recreate, um, recreate people. And that means not... I mean, that's a, it's, a bigger, it's a bigger question, but I think for uh, 
activists and, and people who are really looking for uh, a transformation of, of this, the, these institutions, these systems, that we have to start not with the question of what is possible, you know, which is often a, a question that um, uh, you know, elected officials may start with, but we have to start with the issue of what is just um, and what will produce an outcome that improves the quality of life in general uh, in this society. And those are the questions that are not being asked, and those are the alternatives that were not posed. So when people look at the 70s and say, oh, well, black people wanted to get tough on crime too, the issue was if you have removed all other options and alternatives for people, you, you're, you've cut, you've begun to, by, by the mid-1970s, you've begun to roll back uh, the social programs, the great society programs of the, of the 1960s. You have offered people nothing. And so you, you've left people in neighborhoods uh, where crime rates are beginning to increase. And all you've left people with is police or more police. Those are your alternatives. When those are the two alternatives, then you know, perhaps people choose the police. But part of what the demand is is that we, uh, uh, we have to create more alternatives for people uh, uh, to be able not just to choose from, but in terms of also how we are dealing with people who do commit crimes, because no one's saying that, oh, crime doesn't exist and crime is not uh, uh, an issue. But as a society, we have failed to take that seriously. And locking people up, you know, is, is not a serious uh, uh, response to that when we know that people come back uh, and people, uh, uh, there, there's an effort to reintegrate people back into communities. And we have essentially provided no tools to do so. We've got to finish up in a minute, and I want to ask one last question for Larry and Senator Sanders, which is about social movements. Both of your campaigns benefited enormously from grassroots organizing. Uh, Senator, your, your campaign ignited this grassroots eruption that it seemed like that the actual campaign had to rush to catch up with initially because <laughs> it was so massive. Um, and the reverberations of your campaign continue to be felt with the explosive growth of uh, groups like Democratic Socialists of America. And Larry, your campaign had a massive mobilization as well, in many ways building off of the infrastructure laid by the Sanders campaign with groups like Philadelphia Coalition for a Just District Attorney, which was mentioned earlier, and Reclaim Philadelphia knocking on doors across the city. So my question for both of you is how you, how you see the role of social movements in getting progressive left candidates elected to office, and then what you see their role to be once you're governing? Well, I, I see the role of grassroots social movements as absolutely essential. You know, when I talk about the political revolution, it's not just the progressive agenda that we've talked about. It is the revitalization of American democracy. Okay, I made that point. We have one of the lowest voter turnouts of any major country on earth. And if we can increase that voter turnout conservatively by you know, 10 points, uh, we are going to win elections all over this country. Because the truth is, the truth is very few Americans, including people who voted for Donald Trump, believe that you give tax breaks to billionaires and then throw, try to throw 30 million people off of health insurance. Very few people believe that. And that is the essence of what the Republican Party is about. How do they win? 
They win by maybe intentionally demoralizing people by this plethora of ugly negative ads so that people say, oh, everybody is terrible, I'm not gonna vote. So in fact, what I try to do is wear two hats. We're fighting for a progressive agenda and we are making real success. We have transformed in a significant way, dealing with the issues Larry raised about where the Democratic Party is. It is changing at the grassroots level, but that's not enough. Second of all, we need to rally people. We need the coalitions of working people, black, white, Latino, Native Americans, Asian Americans, young people. We need to open the door and say, you know what? You are a citizen of this country, and if you're worried not only about your own lives, but your kids and your grandchildren, you're gonna have to get involved. You're gonna have to stand with us. You're gonna have to have the guts to take on a billionaire class whose greed in many ways is destroying this country. And when we do that, man, I am incredibly optimistic of the things that we can accomplish as a people. So, I mean, I think the truth is that um, activists do politics better than politicians. I think there's just no question about that. I mean, look at how miserably the Democratic Party's mainstream has done in maintaining their control over seats all over this country. One of the things that we saw here, I thought was, and it wasn't my idea, but I thought it was a very clear diagram of how you do it. Goes like this, you get a message that resonates, you get someone who is considered by activists to be a legitimate messenger, and then you will have the people power. And the people power is what it's all about. Democratic Party, Republican Party can talk all they want, but if they are not turning out all these new votes, they're gonna lose and they're gonna be replaced. And so the questions are when you're trying to figure out what to do locally to elect a progressive prosecutor or US Senator, or whatever it may be, the question is, does the message resonate? It, the activists will tell you that because they're all about the message. And then is the messenger legitimate? The activists will tell you that too because they have been on the ground and they've been trying to push important issues that are coming and that will be here soon. And if you hit those two, you will have the third. You won't have to go looking for it. You will have an enormous army on the ground canvassing, doing mass texting, using all kinds of modern electronic techniques, doing things that you would not think even possible and doing it often without funding, without serious money. And while governing, because uh, I know they stay in touch once you're elected, a lot of them are in this room. <laughs> How does one work with them? Yeah. Um, I think the answer is well. You know, I, th I think the bottom line is, it's the greatest volunteer army you could have. Because when the nonsense starts and the yellow journalism comes at you, they are the ones who can stand up and answer and they can say, no, 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 this isn't the usual trajectory of claiming that an individual is a movement and then we get that individual out of the way with attacks. This is a movement. There is a movement in this DA's office or in this other office and we stand for it and we're gonna answer you. We're gonna answer you with different faces and different groups of people all the time as you try to at attack this until you finally figure out that destroying the supposed leader of what is really a movement is not gonna change anything. I think that's the most important thing they can do. They can also, as they love to say, hold your feet to the fire and keep you accountable. <laughs> I, I hear that a lot and thank you for that. Yeah, yeah uh, they're interested in, in that generally. Yeah, um, and, and uh, you know, make no mistake, activists are smart, they are verbal, they know their stuff. They are an army that can win without weapons and sometimes they heckle you during roundtable conversations. <laughs> they, they can win without weapons because they're that good. They're that good and that's why they're so important. Well, um, that's all the time we have for today. I wanna to thank all of the panelists, Senator Bernie Sanders, District Attorney Larry Krasner, 
Kianga Yamada-Taylor and from Aldaria. Thank you all very much and thanks everyone here for coming and everyone watching. Senator Bernie Sanders, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you about the importance of left candidates winning local election. You started, obviously, as mayor of Burlington. Right. One thing I spent a lot of time worrying about is how thin the left's bench is in terms of elected officials with your national profile. Can getting candidates elected to city council... Well, that is exactly uh, one of the areas uh, we are putting a lot of emphasis on. Uh, it is not just electing candidates to the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House. It is electing candidates to school board. Uh, to city council, to state legislature. Uh, Our Revolution, which is an organization that came out of uh, my campaign, is is focusing a whole lot just on that issue. Uh, We need to get young people, working people involved, and often the way you do that is by running for local office. So to me, that is enormously important. Your campaign has changed what millions of American voters expect from any politician that claims to be a progressive. Um, But leading Democrats seem to be a two minds generously, I'll put it generously uh, on this question. On the one hand, there's support for single-payer health care, which was once relegated to the left fringe, now a litmus test of sorts for anyone claiming to even be a mainstream liberal. But as we saw in the fight to lead the DNC, there is still incredible resistance to change in the party. How do you see the state of the fight? Look, we are taking on the entire establishment. We're taking on moneyed interests. We're taking on Wall Street. We're taking on the Democratic establishment uh, as well. Uh, But what I would simply say, I think, is that in a couple of years, we have come a very, very long way. There are a number, for example, of progressive uh, chairs of state Democratic parties right now. You're right. We lost the fight for chair of the uh, DNC. I was supporting Keith Ellison, but we came pretty close Mm -hmm. and we shocked a lot of people. So, Mm -hmm. look, you don't change the world overnight. But I think it is very clear that ideologically and from a grassroots perspective, the momentum is with us. Last question is that for me, the most important thing about your candidacy, maybe, was that it reminded the left that the point is to win, govern, and transform society, not just sit on the sidelines and protest. And your candidacy reminded us that we not only should be doing that, but can. And my question is, if you had won the 2016 primary, what sort of resistance you think you that would have prompted not only from republicans but if you even won the presidency from the business class that has so much power in this country because obviously the big hurdle first hurdle is winning elections but but what about governing look of course i mean let's not be naive you live in a country which has massive levels of income and wealth inequality where you have a handful of billionaires who have enormous power You're dealing with Wall Street, you're dealing with the drug companies, you're dealing with the military-industrial complex, you're dealing with the insurance companies. Do you think that these people are going to give up their incredible privileges and their profiteering uh, easily? No. (laughs) The only way that you bring about change and and, what uh, has to be done is you develop a strong grassroots movement. No one person can do it. The opposition to a progressive agenda in Washington is enormous. The only way we bring about change is with millions of people Uh, stand up and demand it. Senator Sanders, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bernie Sanders is a senator from Vermont and a person who has done a lot to revive socialist politics in the United States. 
Larry Krasner is a longtime civil rights lawyer and now the district attorney of Philadelphia. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And Pramal Daria is director of litigation at Civil Rights Corps and previously spent nearly 15 years representing people charged with crimes in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and the Military Commission in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after posthumously agreeing that it's definitely socialism or barbarism, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice, this week thrice. The Dig is always produced by Alex Lewis, and this week engineered by Kyle Pulley and John Haywood. The music is forever exclusively by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. Another thing that introduces us to new listeners is you telling your friends, family, total strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but by no means least, please do support this show and ensure its longtime financial viability at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.